This podcast is made possible by the generosity of supporting members. Please visit dharmaocean.org to learn more about becoming a supporting member. You are listening to the Dharma Ocean Podcast. In the second part of this talk on human freedom, Reggie describes how somatic meditation helps us decode karma. Unlike heaven-oriented approaches to spirituality, the embodied journey involves releasing tension and opening to the totality of being. This talk was given in 2010 at the Insight Meditation Center in New York City. So, where where are the springs of life? Where is the energy going to come from? Where is the inspiration? How can we unleash it? And as you know, um, within Tibetan Buddhism, the answer is very simple. That the, unlike other forms of spirituality that may see the body as an impediment. Tibetan Buddhism sees the body as the vehicle to take us to complete human fulfillment. And the reason why in Buddhism it's said, this is you know, the Tibetan tantric view that we're looking at, the reason why it's said that the human birth is the highest birth, even above the lower gods and the middle gods and the upper gods and the form gods and the formless gods and all the heavenly realms where there's pleasure and bliss that goes on forever and ever and ever. (laughs) (laughs) The reason the body, the human birth is a higher birth is because we're the only ones that actually have a physical form. You know, we are the only ones who have a physical body. And what happens with the physical body is that our karmic situation, which means karmic situation is just a a kind of technical way of talking about where we are in the path and how open we are and how closed we are and how big our mind is and how small our mind is and how big our heart is and so on. Um, Our karmic situation is uh, cannot be worked on if we don't have a body. The only way we can work on our karma, the only way we can grow and develop, is if we have a body. And therefore, those who are fortunate enough to be born in a physical form are the most fortunate beings in the universe. This human realm, although from one point of view, it's a realm of tremendous ambiguity and uncertainty and fear and suffering, from another point of view, it's the place where we grow spiritually into a higher mode of being, or a more fundamental mode of being, is a better way to put it. So we are born in this body, and at the moment of birth we have our, you know, our karma is encoded in our body. And we begin to grow up, and we begin to develop a sense of self, and we begin to differentiate you know, ourselves from our caregiver, which represents the world, in a sense, the outer world. And uh, we begin to develop 
not only a sense of me in an ego sense, but we begin to develop a sense of me in an experiential sense. That here within my body, within my person, there is a unique way of experiencing reality. And that there's this other being over here that has a different body and a different point of view. And the more we deepen ourselves, the more we deepen our experience of the other, the more we appreciate our own being and the more we appreciate our own being and the other. And it goes through all of life until death. And it encompasses the whole spiritual path, self and other. At a certain point, uh, the self becomes the awakened state, and the other becomes the um, sacred world. So, and we begin kind of with this little teeny weeny situation in this world. So it's an amazing journey that we make as humans. But in order to grow, the karma that's encoded in our bodies needs to be decoded. We need to decode the karma. And the way we do it is by literally unlocking the treasure house of the body. The body itself, within it, as we are born and as we grow up, contains um, in our, as you know, as we've talked about many times, in our physical being, all of the experiences that over time we're going to need to have in order to reach the fullness of our own human maturity. But they're encoded, which means they're in the unconscious. They're not, we're not conscious of them. So by working with the body, by becoming aware of the body, we go through this very interesting journey of recovering ourself. It's interesting that we can't recover this through our mind, our you know, abstract awareness. You know, you have to, you know, if you start with your awareness, just, just plain awareness, you know, a contentless awareness, then that becomes the object of spirituality, and you get into a position of trying to guard that against the invasion of so-called lower experience. And this is what most meditation is in the West these days. It's the attempt to get into a state of awareness and then protect it against all of the other things that are not aware in ourselves and in other people. It's a kind of, uh, I look at it as a kind of theistic, you know, almost uh, Christian approach to meditation. The, the awareness is heaven and the rest of it is the other place. <laughs> and we want to keep the other, we want to keep the devil out of the uh, dishwater, so to speak. The problem with this approach is that there's no journey, it's static. You can get into a state of awareness. But the awareness defines itself in opposition to everything else. And the awareness is just another way of trying to ward off what we don't want and what we don't like. And so we develop a spiritual ego out of meditation practice, you know, follow the breath, and you know, if something comes up, push it down, get rid of it, discard it, label it, thought, go back to your breath. And it, you know, it may lead to a state of mind that is somewhat peaceful. But there are two points here. Number one is, when you get off the cushion, sometimes you're like a worse person than when you sat down. <laughs> you know, you're meaner to other people, you're more out of control, you're more neurotic. And the other problem is that you find over years that the, the, the patterns don't really shift. And it's very, it's, the reason they don't shift is because you're starting at the wrong end of the stick. When we begin with the body, and the body becomes the foundation of the spiritual journey, 
then our awareness arises out of the work we're doing with the body, and the body itself becomes the, um, the fuel that gives birth to awareness. And the more we decode the body, the more we unlock the secrets and the journey, the less we have to resist the information that the body wants to offer us so we can make our journey. And the less we have to resist, the bigger awareness goes. So we find over time that, um, you know, we start with, we sit down, we meditate, the body's kind of, you know, kind of achy and kind of off balance. And, you know, we, we can feel the, our tummy bulging over our belt and we haven't exercised in days, so we feel sort of Latin. And it's often, you know, kind of uh, sort of great uh, discomfort, you know, we don't really want to face it, but we do. But then we start working with the body, you know, we, st- we stay with it and we do, you know, the meditation that we do in the community and, uh, you know, we follow the techniques and over time we begin to notice that we're sort of actually getting very interested in certain parts of our body and there's certain areas of tension and then we start to discover that the body is actually a very tense kind of situation. Maybe a big situation, but it's, an, it's a very tense one. And there are a lot of countries of tension in the different parts of our body. It gets kind of interesting. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. I never noticed that before. Somebody will tell you, why don't you try working with your left thumb? And you start exploring your left thumb, maybe wake up at night, because this is a great practice to do if you have insomnia. I mean, you can log hours and hours of meditation if you have insomnia. Because you're in bed. And you can justify it because it is a technique for going back to sleep. But on the other hand, you get you make a lot of headway. Working with the thumb, and you know, 45 minutes later, you're halfway up your thumb, and it's, all, it's been interesting the whole way. And you notice that the more you work with your thumb, all of a sudden the whole body is starting to respond and relax and open up, and you know, you start to feel the uh, kind of flow of energy. So it's, a, it's an endless process, and you know, the more we work with it, the more okay it becomes. Yeah, I am very tense, but on the other hand, when I put my attention there, I do start relaxing. So this goes on for a long time, and the, um, so I sort of, do, I'm giving you kind of an overview now of the journey of the hamster's body. So we continue to work, and um, we begin to notice that our feeling life has melted. And, you know, the more we start getting to know our body from the inside, the more we start to notice a lot of feelings and emotions and, um, you know, experiences that uh, we didn't really have before. And we start to, uh, sometimes it's a little intense, you know, we maybe get angry faster, but uh, we cool down faster, or we feel suddenly you know, incredibly joyful, or then we feel terribly needy, and then we feel completely independent and self-sufficient. And this is a very uh, unsettling stage of the journey. Because every time we have an intense experience, we think, oh, that's me. Now I know who I am. That's cool. If it was a bad experience, it's, well, that's it. You know, my life's over. I'm a complete mess. You know, I can't do anything. You know, I'm totally screwed up. But if it's a positive experience, which it might be the next hour, you know, strong and you see things and you're kind of open you go, I got it, that's it. (laughs) This is what I was looking for. I'm here. It's always going to be like this. (laughs) 
And, you know, after a while, we start to realize that, unfortunately, sadly enough, it isn't always going to be like anything. In fact, the whole point is that it isn't like anything particular, and the river just keeps going and we keep changing. And this requires some getting used to, you know, and you never get used to it, but you become familiar with it. You realize this is the process of being alive. It's not to pin ourselves down or pin down our experience or our life, but really what it's about is seeing what life brings to us and realizing that the more open and relaxed we are, the less definitive we are as people. And at a certain point, we begin to suspect that maybe our own life isn't really that much about us, which is an interesting place to be. That there's something larger that happens because, you know, as we practice, as we open up, we notice a lot of strange coincidences begin to happen with other people. And there's a lot of magic, and things that we need are suddenly there from the universe. And you begin to wonder if, you know, all this teaching about there's the human and the universe, and the universe is dead, and there's no real inherent relationship between the human journey and the journey of the universe, you start to realize that that's actually a lot of bullshit. <laughs> and maybe a, a kind of scientific understanding of whole culture rests on, but it's not true. You know, I mean, it's great that, you know, we have scientific understanding, and we have learned to control a lot of things. The only problem is, the picture of the universe that it has isn't true. That's interesting. Mm. What am I going to do about that? Well, we're taught to trust it. We're taught to trust our experience over any and all authorities, right? That's what the Dharma is about. So the journey unfolds and we begin to discover all kinds of things about the body you know, as we go. Um, we begin to discover the energy in the body, that there's always something going on. We discover that thoughts, you know, flow, and they come and they go. We don't really have to get involved, particularly, either way. We begin to discover a sort of inner spaciousness in the body. You know, when we go into the body and we put our awareness in different places, that the body is infinite, really. The inner space is infinite, experientially. And what's happening here is that we are, strangely enough, discovering the vastness of life and the full measure of freedom within the body. And the mysterious thing is, the more we are able to stay within that vastness of the body and that flowingness of the body, the more our engagement with the world is one that is non-oppositional, but it's a harmonious one. And at a certain point, we may feel that the energy that's flowing within us is also flowing in the world, and that there's a dance that goes on, you know, and that we are part of it. And the we isn't an ego, but it's an incarnational we. You know, we as incarnations are moments of life and moments of, uh, you know, we're, we're like specks of foam in this huge sea of life. And, you know, that's what they call in a tantric tradition that's non dual experience. Non-dual experience doesn't mean that somehow we are in some kind of state of mind where there isn't anything else. But it means that everything is, um, you know, that there is no solid self, there is no solid me as opposed to the world. There's a kind of freedom that doesn't require the use of the term I. And yet it's our life and we're living. So it's a freedom even within the ego. Even the ego itself is an expression 
of life itself. The ego is no problem as long as we don't take it personally. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, these Tibetan uh, teachings are uh, wonderful, and uh, you know, particularly for modern people who are quite prepared, you know, most modern people that I meet anyway are quite prepared to put aside traditional religion, and they're quite prepared to hear that their own life is the spirituality they seek. And they're quite prepared to hear that their um, task in life is to shepherd their own incarnation and to look after their own incarnation. Their responsibility is to bring their own incarnation to its fullness. And that's an unusual situation. Today, um, I met with three other teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Pat O'Hare. Uh, we were talking about these things that I'm talking to you about, and Pat is uh, Zen. Sharon and Joseph are Kripasana uh, and Tibetan Vajrayana. But we share the same language. We share the same inspiration, and we share the same spiritual world. And we were kind of talking about why that's true. And I think it's true, because all of us now, both Asians and Westerners and Africans and you know, everybody in the world is in a place now where the dharma of life and the dharma of the dignity and the sacredness of each human person is, that's our spirituality. And we need to learn how to love our own life in that much, hopefully. And we need to love other people in that way, and we need to do whatever we can to free them to realize their own human existence. And part of that is going to be, if they're hungry, we need to provide food. If they're sick, we need to provide healing. But the food and the healing need to be the beginning of nourishment for them, and the true nourishment is the dharma, which offers them not just to be another cog in the consumeristic machine, but that within the fallen, you could say so-called fallen world, that people can reach the same fulfillment and the same realization today that they did two or three thousand years ago. So um, we're, we're living in a changing world. and. Uh, it's interesting, these very sort of strange, esoteric, somatic uh, teachings from this uh, weird Tibetan backlands where, you know, when they, they're yaks, um, you know, that those teachings actually may end up being exactly what we need in this world to make the journey. Or at least they could be a tool. It could be one way we can make the full journey. To download more of Reggie's teachings, find out about upcoming retreats, and to explore a variety of audio listening guides to assist you on your spiritual journey, please visit dharmaocean.org.
Our music is by Jeff Beale and Nawang Ketchog from the album Tibet Cry of the Snow Lion. <laughs> 